1: for JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number Store or sleepnumber.com.
2: One thing we've been thinking about is, you know, could the companies even be giving more control to users? by allowing them to even say click a button when they upload something that says that they're giving affirmative agreement for this to go into some kind of repository for later evidence collection.
3: I'm Quinta Jurassic and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 14th, 2022. The internet is increasingly emerging as a source for identification and documentation of war crimes, as the Russian invasion of Ukraine has devastatingly proven yet again. But how does an image of a possible war crime go from social media to a tribunal in a potential war crimes prosecution? Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. On a recent episode, Evelyn Duak and I spoke with Nick Waters, the lead on justice and accountability at Bellingcat, about how open source investigators go about documenting evidence of atrocity. This week, we interviewed Alexa Koenig, the executive director of the Human Rights Center at the University of California, Berkeley, and an expert on using digital evidence for justice and accountability. She walked us through how international tribunals have adapted to using new forms of evidence derived from the internet, how social media platforms have helped and hindered collection of this kind of evidence, and the work she's done to create a playbook for investigators downloading and collecting material documenting atrocities. One thing to flag before we begin, Because of the nature of the conversation, this discussion does contain some descriptions of violence that might be upsetting. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 14th. Bringing evidence of war crimes from Twitter to The Hague.
4: Let's start with a really basic question, which we talked about a few weeks ago when we had Nick Waters from Bellingcat on the show, but I think it would be good to refresh listeners' memories before we jump in. What kind of evidence ends up on social media these days that can be important for war crimes, prosecutions? And you know, maybe if you could give us a few recent instances or examples from the war in Ukraine that would be representative, that would be really helpful.
2: Of course. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, In terms of the types of evidence that we're seeing in the context of Ukraine and other conflicts around the world, there's really three buckets of information that are proving incredibly helpful. The first is what is known as lead information. So this would be things like tweets that show pictures of different kinds of atrocities, videos, for example, that might show people who could be helpful witnesses downstream, or also might lead you to other kinds of information like physical evidence, In any kind of war crimes prosecution, one of the things that you're looking to do is to triangulate physical with testimonial with documentary information. Testimonial, of course, being what witnesses have to say about what happened in their communities or potentially expert witnesses who have specialized knowledge. The physical evidence being things like potential murder weapons or types of chemicals that might be used in a chemical weapons attack. And then, of course, the documentary evidence being things like written orders or contractual agreements, but increasingly also the photos and videos that could become primary evidence in a court of law. So all of these these things that are being posted to social media right now become incredibly valuable as leading war crimes investigators to those other types of information. At the same time, one thing that's really needed by war crimes investigators is what's known as linkage evidence. So it's that evidence that will get you from the crimes as they're perpetrated on the ground that will link all the way up to the commanding general or the president of a country. Ultimately, the person at that very high level whom the international system really wants to hold responsible for these crimes. The third and final bucket is what's known as the crime-based evidence. So that's going to be the actual written or visual information that shows that a particular crime has potentially occurred. And just thinking about one example recently, there was a tweet that I saw circulating in the context of Ukraine that showed um, allegedly a number of bodies partially covered by a blanket. Supposedly, they were a number of women that were naked. And the illusion was that potentially some form of sexual violence had occurred, but as well that they had been murdered. And those are the kinds of things that I think will eventually get pulled together need to be traced back to the source, the person who originally captured that imagery, to question them about the who, what, when, where, and why of what might have actually taken place.
3: And so, tell us a little bit about the legal mechanics of how all of this works. Once we have this evidence on the table, who is it that can face prosecution? You, you've talked a little about this, but I think digging into the specifics would be useful. You know, who brings the cases? What are the mm-hmm. elements? How likely are prosecutions to to be successful? I, I think you know historically they they seem perhaps few and far between. Prosecutions for war crimes and maybe take a, a long time to come to fruition. So. What's the most difficult part of of proving a case, and will social media help with that? Great
2: questions. I think one of the trickiest things is really how long it takes to bring high-level war crimes perpetrators to any form of justice. I think unlike the media reporting that we're seeing right now that's showing these atrocities in close to real time, we might be looking at, at a minimum of two to three years before any cases are brought for what's taking place now. But more common would be to see a five to even 30-year lag for these cases to slowly be built, especially if you're talking about really high-level perpetrators, for example, potentially tying these crimes to someone like Putin. Um, In terms of who can face prosecution, it really depends on the kind of court that you're talking about bringing these cases in. At the International Criminal Court, for example, what you're looking at is they have jurisdiction over the highest-level perpetrators for the most grave crimes— In that instance, you're not going to see lower level people who are probably boots on the ground and may have committed some of the murders and rapes that are currently being alleged. What you're more likely to see is an attempt to get higher level commanding generals or even someone like Putin eventually some kind of responsibility for these kinds of crimes. Now, those are really hard cases to build. And I think what it really comes down to, I wrote a book with some colleagues, Victor Peskin and Eric Stover, called Hiding in Plain Sight. And the question that we were investigating in the research for that book was, what does it take to get really high-level perpetrators behind bars and ultimately get them into a court of law? And we were looking at the legal elements of this, the political elements of it, and also the operational ones. And I think something that was very humbling for me as a lawyer was to recognize that while, yes, you need the legal frameworks in place to try to go after these individuals, and you need the operational tactics in place to really gather all the evidence and to find out where they are and when what they're doing, it's really the political will that drives a lot of whether we ever see any kind of legal justice for crimes of this scale. And in order to build the political will, I think that's a really interesting area where the tweets and the Facebook posts and everything else become quite powerful because a big piece of this is really driving the international momentum to take the time and assess the resources that might be available and really appoint them to building these kinds of cases that are quite resource intensive. We also have other jurisdictions. So for example, beyond the ICC, You've got the International Court of Justice, where you may have one government filing a complaint against another government for violation of an international convention or international body of law. Um, And of course, then you have national war crimes courts as well. And I think that third bucket has proven particularly fruitful over the last several years in contexts like Syria and elsewhere to try to get some national level accountability outside of these conflict areas. For crimes that might have been perpetrated in various countries around the world. So I'm
4: assuming that all of these legal systems' relationship with this kind of evidence is somewhat dynamic. Like, obviously, it's actually not that long ago that none of this kind of evidence existed. And I'm curious whether, as it started to sort of come forth and and started to play a part of these conflicts, how it was viewed by these legal systems, whether it was received with scepticism or, you know, uh, gratitude that it might help accountability, whether it has been really useful in bringing more accountability and how that relationship has changed over time, whether, you know, judges and prosecutors and things like that have gotten more used to the role of this evidence in, in bringing these cases.
2: Sure. I do think that a lot of this digital open source investigation type material and information more generally is becoming more and more um, recognized as a really important source of information that can support justice and accountability efforts. So when at the Human Rights Center here at UC Berkeley, when we started doing this work about a decade ago of thinking about how social media content and other digital information might support justice and accountability Um, There was really kind of a resistance to the idea that a tweet or a Facebook post or something similar could ever become primary evidence in a court of law. And there's good reason for that. If you look at some of the jurisprudence coming out of the court, some of the court filings that we were looking at back in 2010, 2011, the judges were saying that they really didn't see open source information as being something that could ever really support the evidentiary foundations of a case. So we did a study back in 2011-2012 to look at why a number of cases at the International Criminal Court were falling apart at relatively early stages of prosecution. And we sent to someone who was at UC Berkeley who was a PhD student to the court and she went through the court filings and what she came back and said was that ultimately the judges have two main criticisms in the context of these cases that have fallen apart. And the first is that they complained that the Office of the Prosecutor had over-relied on open source information. But their definition of open source information is a little bit different than how we think about it today. While the common thread is that this is all information that members of the public can get access to, I think the challenge back then is that what we were primarily referring to as open source information were NGO reports. So the kinds of reports that Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch were putting out, that the prosecutor was trying to put forward to suggest that there should be enough evidence to allow these cases to proceed. And the judges were saying that that's not primary evidence. This is secondary or secondhand material, and you really need more. The second concern was that the prosecutors were really heavily relying on witness testimony. And while, of course, what witnesses have to say is really critical and always going to be at the heart of a prosecution— What the judges wanted to see was more corroborating information. And that's where, if you think back to what was happening in 2011, 2012, there began to be a growing understanding that, wait a second, the smartphones proliferating across the globe. Social media is spreading to more and more countries. We were seeing a drop in price and increase in accessibility around satellite imagery Big data analytics was increasingly coming in as a set of methodologies to support war crimes prosecutions. Drones were being increasingly used to try and get overhead footage of what was taking place in war zones. And so we began working with a number of NGOs around the world and a number of different kinds of investigators to really ask the question of how does our new digital information environment potentially provide a really rich source of data that could come in and either be used to corroborate what these survivors are saying, or in some cases to disprove it. But ultimately, the legal, the international legal systems understanding of the weaknesses and strengths of this material ultimately had to be developed. And I think that it's really been quite a journey for all of us over the last 10 years to think about how do we think about reliability of this kind of information, understanding that digital information can be uh, manipulated or even constructed whole cloth. How do we think about authenticity and how to authenticate some of these materials, whether by bringing in witnesses to talk about how the information was captured and what they know about it, and then ultimately what might make some of this information inadmissible. Our big concern as we began to understand that the, that the scale and scope of this information was only going to keep growing and its power potentially becoming more important for these kinds of prosecutions was that ultimately we had two concerns about judges. The first that was that they would find this information so compelling that ultimately it might get overweighted in courts of law. And that they might not, or that the defense or that the the judges themselves might not really know how to probe the quality of the work that was being done. And then the other was that instead of overweighing it, they might underweigh it by saying, look, I really don't know how to assess this. I know that things can be Photoshopped and or created from scratch. And so underweighing information that had ultimately been incredibly resource intensive to gather and to analyze and to package And, of course, where people might have risked their lives in these really volatile areas to try to capture the footage in the first place. But ultimately, I think with things like the work of different NGOs around the world, the training that we've seen from groups like Witness and Vedere e Credere to train people on the ground in conflict areas how to capture this information in ways that are particularly helpful to court processes the establishment of the Berkeley Protocol on Digital Open Source Investigations, which we released with the UN Human Rights Office um, last year to try and set a foundation or a floor for even discussing how this information could be useful. All of these things have been slowly building to really help, I think, increase the visibility of this kind of information for court purposes, but ultimately give it even greater weight and power that it might have had otherwise.
3: Yeah, so so tell us a little bit about the Berkeley Protocol. What is it, how did it come about, and, and what does it say?
2: So the Berkeley Protocol on Digital Open Source Investigations is a set of international guidelines that were established to try to set some sort of foundational floor or minimum set of standards for introducing online open source investigation material, like tweets and Facebook posts, et cetera, into courts as potential evidence. So it was um, a really long process. We started spearheading this effort back in 2016, 2017, when we realized that there were really no international standards for how to think about social media content and its potential utility as evidence. We did a number of um, projects that were looking at jurisdictions around the world to try to figure out how other court systems were making use of this sort of material And what we found was that it was really ad hoc and kind of patchy as to who was doing what with what. I received a series of phone calls from lawyers in Iraq, I think it was back in 2016, and they had reached out to us because they knew we had recently launched an investigations lab on the Berkeley campus to train students and some professionals in how to source online information and potentially use that for fact-finding. And ultimately, they were asking me, you know, Alexa, we're getting all these WhatsApp messages and we're getting information pulled from social media, et cetera. But we don't know how to download it to a forensic standard, where to put it, how to store it, what we should even be thinking about in order to make sure that this can end up in courts. And I, of course, didn't really know the the answers to those questions either. And so it really became this group effort of us and other people trying to crowdsource that information. Eventually, Lindsay Freeman joined our team, and she had worked for quite some time at the International Criminal Court. And she and I began interviewing people around the world. I think the total number of interviews landed somewhere around 150, if not more, to find out groups like the FBI, the Department of Justice, the State Department, but also human rights investigators, other lawyers, about how they were handling this sort of information. We found out that there were quite a few issues that were really unsettled or were so on the cutting edge of how you think about digital evidence that really there needed to be some consensus building. So we ended up hosting, it was either four or five workshops to bring people together from across disciplines to talk through what the future should look like and how we should grapple with some of those issues. One concrete example of that would be things like, what are the ethics of doing this work? We know there are legal parameters in a number of different jurisdictions about, or legal permissibility around what you can access, how, when, how it can be used. And we all have professional codes of ethics, whether we're lawyers or journalists, but there were some new issues that were emerging where there was no real clear legal or ethical guidance. So we worked with a group at the University of Essex and Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, to try and think through some of those challenges as well as tackle things like what does it mean to use a sock puppet to do your investigation? Should that be prohibited or is it permissible? A sock puppet, of course, being a fake identity to protect yourself or protect your investigation when you're poking around in places online. So after we completed those workshops, we ended up pulling together a preliminary text and working very closely with the UN to try to finalize that text and make sure that this could be as broadly useful as possible. And so today, um, we basically launched with them in December 2020, the English version. It's still in its preliminary form in the sense that it won't be officially launched until it's actually released in all of the languages of the UN, which we're hoping is coming and coming soon. In the meantime, we do know that the government of Ukraine has had it translated into Ukrainian so that it will hopefully be more broadly accessible to help support um, efforts of documentation and fact-finding in this crisis.
4: So it seems to me what you're describing and what the Berkeley Protocol describes is kind of an ideal version of how Mm -hmm. this might work, but I'm curious how far... The reality is from that process and if we're getting closer to it you know like watching this play out right now you know from my completely untrained eye um, and and my perspective far away it doesn't seem like it's um, as ordered as maybe that process describes and so I'm curious how this works and how professionalized it is right now or how much it's still sort of you know relying on just what happens to get uploaded and and, and how much sort of maybe professional mobilization there is around this once A crisis like this, once a conflict like this breaks out, and it's clear that there is going to be, you know, important evidence being uploaded to social media. What does it look like? How does stuff that is, you know, online or happening in Ukraine right now one day end up in front of a of a court or a tribunal of some sort? And how close is that to the ideal version?
2: Great question. You know, it it is a little bit ideal, but at the same time, when we were developing the Berkeley Protocol, we were looking to set minimum standards there was a huge debate that we had internally between should we be aiming for best practices or something else? And I think our concern was that if you aim for best practices at this early stage in the kind of development of this area of practice more generally, that you would ultimately discourage people from engaging in some of the really important and careful steps that are baked into the Berkeley protocol that would ultimately, hopefully, make the work stronger over time. So what we decided to do was really ask ourselves what are the minimum standards that need to be in place to ensure that this information is of the quality that it advances issues like due process for legal purposes. Ultimately the, the groups that we there's kind of three different set of fact-finding groups that we tend to work with on a day-to-day basis. One is reporters, investigative reporters and other journalists. Another are these human rights and war crimes investigators who we think of as needing to do things to a legal standard. And then the third are human rights investigators and researchers. That middle bucket is ultimately the group that has to be the most careful and onerous in terms of the standards that they apply, in part because you don't want them spending tons of money and hours and taking risks with people's data in ways that might not ultimately lead to justice and accountability. And of course, the evidentiary standards in courts are much higher than they would be for, say, issuing a human rights report, if you're a human rights Watch or Amnesty International, and even for investigative reporting and journalism, even though, of course, journalists are going to be quite rigorous in their methodologies and their fact-checking. So in aiming for this minimum set of standards, I think one thing that we knew needed to happen and is very much in the Berkeley Protocol Is even just getting common definitions and terminology in place. Um, When we hosted a big workshop in October 2017, when we were first thinking about creating this protocol, we brought together journalists who are pioneering a lot of the underlying methodologies for finding information online and verifying its accuracy, but also trial attorneys and investigators from the International Criminal Court with technologists who really understood some of the underlying technical infrastructures of these systems. And we, we thought we'd spend about an hour or two just making sure that we were all using the same terms and we all agreed on what those terms meant, like open source investigation, what that even means. And instead of spending one to two hours on it, the entire first day of that workshop ended up being hashing out five definitions. And I think that really underscored for me just what a Wild West in some ways we were operating in where there were so many people who had such a depth and breadth of experience working in war crimes contexts who were really struggling with even understanding how this information should come in. And so I think the definition we ultimately landed on for the protocol was that these digital open source investigations or information is information that is accessible to any member of the public, meaning that you don't need to have some kind of subpoena or warrant to get access to the information so you don't need a special status. It also doesn't include information that you might need to use illegal means to access. So, for example, anything that's hacked wouldn't ultimately be open source investigation material. Um, Now, if it's been hacked and leaked online, I think that adds a whole new set of considerations that my colleague, Lindsay, has been really trying to think through and grapple with. But ultimately, what we wanted to make sure is we are seeing more and more people gathering this information and trying to have it come into court processes is we wanted to make sure the basic building blocks were in place. First, that we all knew what digital open source investigations were and that we agreed to that basic term. Second, that people were really thinking through the additional physical security, digital security, and psychosocial security issues that arise when dealing with large quantities of graphic and highly sensitive material. Do people have the right safeguards in place to protect the data? to protect the people who are depicted in it and or might have captured it in the first place, Um, but also protect the investigations teams and the investigators who may be struggling with dealing with so much upsetting content. Third, that they were thinking about the ethics of the work that they were doing and not just collecting tweets and Facebook posts and YouTube videos for the sake of collecting and holding onto the information, but that they had a clear plan for where this would go and what kind of impact it would have. The, one of the worst things you can do in a conflict period like this is set up unrealistic expectations for survivors about what can potentially be accomplished. And then fourth, that people were really thinking through critically how to eliminate issues of bias when searching for this information online. It's really easy to go into this in a haphazard way and just capture all the low-hanging fruit. I think we're all being inundated right now of really atrocious things happening in Ukraine and popping up on our feeds But what do we miss if we just prioritize the stuff that pops up in our timelines without doing structured searching and really doing some thoughtful investigation planning to counteract and ultimately discover some of the crimes that may be less obvious, but just as needed in terms of getting some form of justice and accountability? And for that, I'm thinking about things like how we prioritize visual material in spaces online. Like we may see a lot of different bits of footage around the bombing of buildings or the gassing of individuals, but it much, may be much harder to see and or to recognize posts that, that say, suggest that there might have been sexual and gender-based violence, for example. So in the worst case scenario, you ultimately have social media creating an even bigger wedge between these highly visible and often prosecuted crimes from the ones that may too frequently be overlooked And thus, you might be getting justice for some victims, but not really thinking through strategically how you get them for a broader array of victims in crises and conflicts like this. In terms of how this information one day ends up in court, I think there have been a number of new challenges in the digital environment. One, of course, is the fact that social media platforms are often an intermediary between people who are capturing information on the ground, like videos and photographs, And ultimately, these getting into the hands of investigators. But of course, since about 2017, 2018, most of these platforms have really automated the detection of graphic material. So they are now spotting the graphic material. And I think I was just talking to someone from Meta the other day who said it was a matter of seconds usually before some of the most graphic material is detected and ultimately deleted. So we no longer, as human beings who work at very human scales, have the opportunity necessarily to find and capture that information and to make sure that it's preserved for later court processes. And so one of the things we've been doing with a number of other NGOs is talking with the major social media platforms about could there be one day the creation of an international evidence locker that could become a repository for some of the information that they may need to remove from their platforms because it could be upsetting for their viewers or create new privacy or security risks but that ultimately might have evidentiary value for war crimes courts. Another big issue has been who's capturing the, the material and how they're capturing it, and then how they can signal that they have it once they have it. So let's say, you know, a group goes online and they find potential evidence of war crimes, and they decide to capture that and maybe later give it to prosecutors. The question is, first, how are they capturing it? Even back in 2015, 2016, it was pretty standard to do something like do a screen grab and then have some kind of universal time date stamp put on it and have that be considered sort of, quote unquote, forensic capture. Today, judges are expecting to see a lot more than that. And I think that's something that we also wanted to signal in the Berkeley Protocol, that ideally you're using a tool like Hunchly or something else that allows you to capture and download the full post that you've just visualized you're hopefully getting the metadata along with the post itself. So metadata, of course, being any time date stamp that might still be attached, any contextual information like the comments around a particular post, which can be very valuable in and of itself, um, both in terms of maybe pointing at the who, what, when, where, why of these atrocities, but also helping to authenticate some of these materials. And then you're ideally hashing them. So when you download it, Ultimately, in the best case scenario, a a unique um, alphanumeric string is attached to this particular item. The thing that's helpful about that is that once this information is safeguarded and then later presented in court, you can run a software program across the item. If you come up with the same alphanumeric code as when you initially captured the data, that strongly suggests this information hasn't been manipulated since the time of capture, and proves and basically works as a form of digital chain of custody for these digital assets. In a war crime zone, the way we would normally preserve chain of custody is you would grab like the bone fragment or the murder weapon, and it would be captured and carefully put into a paper bag or a plastic bag, depending on the material. And you would sign your name to it as the investigator and put the time and date on it. And eventually, as it was passed along physically from person to person until it ended up in court... It would be time date stamped and you would sign off on it and you could ultimately use that to show hopefully a lack of tampering between point of capture and point of introduction we've needed to kind of create these whole new processes um, of course borrowing from local jurisdictions and things that have been happening here in the u.s and elsewhere but much of this infrastructure has really had to become more and more sophisticated over time so you get all these ngos who are capturing all this information from social media they're preserving it, then the next challenge is going to be how are they tagging it and coding it so that later on they can retrieve the information that might be most relevant if war crimes investigators come looking for what people might have if that information is no longer available online. That's another area where I think groups like Mnemonic and others have worked with us and worked independently and with others to try to help think through if a war crimes investigator or someone from the ICC later is hoping to find evidence that's been removed and see if anyone else has it, we can all quickly get the date of a particular incident and the location and see what might be available. I think one thing that's going to be really interesting to watch is whether some kind of international repository for this kind of digital information may be created. We've seen beginning experimentation related to the conflicts in Syria and Myanmar where independent mechanisms were set up to which a number of different organizations and individuals could contribute the kinds of of information that they had gathered, whether it was more traditional evidence or this kind of digital documentation. I think what the international community is is increasingly seeing is that there's a need for kind of a conflict agnostic repository, so one that could function very much like the International Criminal Court does for trials, but become a place where this information could be held consolidated, deduplicated, and ultimately tagged and coded so that as national war crimes units and international investigators come looking and are building these cases, sometimes years down the line, that information will still be carefully preserved and ready to introduce as evidence when the time is right.
3: Thank you. That was an incredibly comprehensive answer. And I think there there are so many different things <laughs> that I want to follow up on. But to to start with, I'm curious to talk more about the The way that material is collected and you you mentioned, you know, sort of addressing the possibility of bias and how that Mm -hmm. how that works. So to use just one example among many, there have been some uh, seemingly credible reports of potential war crimes committed by Ukrainian forces. So not not nearly as many as by Russian forces, to be clear, but there are reports out there. Uh, the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights reported in late March that it had seen documentation of pro-Russian Ukrainian citizens being beaten and tortured in territory controlled by Ukraine. Of course, on social media, because uh, the vast uh, weight of public sympathy is with Ukraine, and rightly so, these incidents seem to get a lot less attention or, you know, their veracity is is called into question. So there's sort of less energy in tracking down potential crimes committed by Ukrainians. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about how that affects evidence collection and, and how to address that and work around it. Absolutely.
2: So bias is such a huge issue in this particular area of practice. I mean, if we think about the internet and just the scale of digital information, it's really tempting to almost cherry pick information from that, within that huge, enormous data set. One of the things my colleagues and I have been really grappling with is beginning to try to identify and really articulate the three different kinds of bias that can distort our understanding of what's happening in war when they're applied. The first is access bias. So who, for example, has access to the Internet, access to a smartphone, and is able to upload this kind of information, all of that is going to ultimately bias what information even makes it to digital spaces in the first place. So, for example, if you're in a part of Ukraine where the internet isn't functioning, your phone has been destroyed or you might not have access to it, et cetera, or there may be very gendered patterns of who has access to a smartphone and who doesn't, who is available to access the internet and who can't, that's ultimately going to distort the information environment in which we're working in in the first place. The second bucket of bias is machine bias. So when those of us who are outside the conflict area or inside it trying to conduct investigations in digital spaces are doing that work, we've got to be thinking about how the algorithms common to social media distort what we see and also how, you know, if you think about on Twitter or Facebook, who's posting what, it's going to be the most scandalous, most egregious stuff the stuff that people are turning to that ultimately gets amplified even further by the algorithms that are being driven by these companies. And and then in addition to that, we've got machine bias in the sense that if I'm doing an investigation, say, from here in Berkeley, California, the results I'm fed when I type keywords into, say, Google search bar is going to be very different than someone who's searching from within Ukraine. Um, And the order in which I put words is even going to distort those findings so I think knowing how we create as neutral an operating environment as possible is going to be really important for making sure we're getting a rounded picture of war. And then the final part, which I think you're most getting at, is, are the human biases, also known as cognitive biases. The last time I checked, there were more than 100 different kinds of cognitive biases to which humans are subject. And I think a big piece of this is making sure that we're all aware of what those biases are, for example, our tendency to maybe sympathize um, with Ukrainians more than Russians in this particular context, given the facts of this being a very aggressive type of invasion, but to make sure that we are acting as a check on ourselves. So one of the biggest challenges and, be- and best known biases is um, confirmation bias, which is, of course, where you have a theory of who did what to whom and who's the bad guy, who's the good guy, and you go online, and you're looking for information, and subconsciously, you're looking for the information that supports that hypothesis, and you're you're basically ignoring the information that may be contradictory. I could certainly see that playing out in this instance, given the overwhelming and understanding support for what people are suffering in Ukraine. I think, unfortunately, there does seem to be information that There's been some mistreatment of Russian soldiers as well. That's information we may be less inclined to collect if we definitely have a greater sympathy and empathy with Ukrainians in this particular situation. But if you're working for the International Criminal Court or a war crimes investigations team, you really are mandated to investigate things fairly and objectively. So thinking through how you either... I know journalists often call it report against your findings. So you've, you've come up with a theory of the case or what's taking place and who the perpetrators are, making sure that you're also querying the opposite. Can you prove that you're wrong in addition to proving that you're right? Having some form of peer review so another organization really check the quality of your work and see if bias may have affected your, your outcomes and your outputs. I think all of that becomes really critical As well as having multiple working hypotheses about what has happened with each of these incidents, and really querying each of those hypotheses against the data that you can find in these online spaces.
1: Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022 and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of, called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and make sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web, data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindelete.me.com/lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
4: So I'd like to pivot to talk a little bit about the platforms and the role that they play in this this space? Because you've talked a number of times about the kinds of effects that they can have. So whether it's, as you said, removing material uh, within seconds of it being uploaded, or even before it hits the platform through you know the hashing that they do to, to match gruesome images, or through the kinds of things that you were talking about just then, about the way that their algorithms promote certain kinds of material or may create biases. And I'm curious about, how you've found it working with them, uh, if uh, you know you, you mentioned talking to Meta and and how it's changed over time, because I can see there are very real tensions for them as well. Um, on the one hand, they have this enormous responsibility and capacity to help preserve this material uh, and, and bring accountability and justice in the future for war crimes. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, from the other side, often they're getting a lot of pressure to remove a, a lot of graphic content or incitement to violence. And there's sort of legal regimes coming into place around the world that threaten them with liability if they don't do that. And so, you know, I, I'm curious when, when you talk to them or when you work with them, how they are thinking about their role and their responsibility in in this space and what kind of liability or what kind of principle uh, is their main motivating factor, you think?
2: Sure. And I think it depends who you talk to at each of these companies. I mean, ultimately, everyone from Meta to Twitter to TikTok to YouTube have been in conversation with our organization and with others who are really trying to think about the value of this kind of content for justice and accountability purposes, Um, I remember mapping with some of my students at one point when we were thinking about whether there should be a digital evidence locker created for this stuff that they might be removing, where it could be sent so it's not destroyed and ultimately remains accessible. And it really was a little bit overwhelming to think about the competing interests, both legal and social, that come into decision-making about what to do with this stuff. And so, I mean, some of the stuff that they're grappling with is, first of all, the IP considerations, So who, for example, has rights to the videos, the photographs, and um, are there IP implications in sharing this with others? The privacy implications, of Mm -hmm. course, you know, when you you post something to YouTube or Facebook, you um, expect that they're going to handle your information in careful ways and not just give it over to civil society groups or others. And ultimately, I mean, we really want them thinking about those privacy issues because people who are depicted in the the photos and videos, who upload it, all might be harmed in ways that we can't anticipate by the further sharing and spreading of that information. There are national security considerations, so in terms of what's leaked and what's put out there in the world. But then also, of course, on the other side, freedom of expression and access to information issues, which are really important theories or thoughts within the human rights framework, we want to make sure we all have access to information, that we know what's happening in the world, and that people have an opportunity to reach out for help over digital platforms when they need that assistance. So, I mean, I do think in talking to the human rights policy people at each of these companies, they're very well-versed and they know, understand deeply the human, these competing human rights values and interests that come into play about whether to keep something up or take something down. And a lot of the conversation is centered on are there, in some instances, a middle ground, whether it may be something like, you know, can you deprioritize the spread of a particular post? Because it's not quite so egregious that it has to be removed from the platform. It might still have value for war crimes investigators if they know it exists or if they actively search for it. But hopefully you're not exposing everyday people to information that might be greatly upsetting or or dangerous in some other capacity. Another option is, of course, as I was mentioning earlier, to potentially get this information shared with some kind of evidence locker or international repository or for the companies even to remove it but not destroy it and to hold on to it so that law enforcement war crimes investigators can make a lawful request for access to it at some downstream point in time. I know one thing we've all been talking about is preservation requests. Whether it's just legal investigators who should be able to ask for the preservation of a particularly damning piece of content, or whether there might be some scenarios under which it would be appropriate for civil society groups who are actively monitoring conflicts and trying to safeguard human rights interests to actually make that preservation request and then work with law enforcement to have the law enforcement bodies or legal investigators later know that it's there and be able to get access to it if a case is brought. So all of those would be kind of intermediary alternative options to just the wholesale destruction of some of this information. I do think all of the companies really do understand that this information can potentially have quite a bit of value. And increasingly, civil society is understanding that there are some really legitimate reasons for taking some of this content down. I think for a long time, civil society was really trying to get hold of the content themselves But of course, under the European privacy regulations and U.S. privacy law, there's a lot of reasons why it wouldn't make sense to do so. Privacy is very much a human rights interest in and of itself, too. So as human rights practitioners, we need to be very mindful of the privacy interests of both the posters and the people that are being posted about as part of that. I do think one thing we have seen are tremendous gains over the last seven, eight years in companies' willingness to potentially hold on to some of this content and to try to figure out while they're preserving it, you know, kind of have us, it's almost like building the airplane while you're flying. We're right now in the middle of an active conflict with a ton of content. I think some organizations are beginning to hold on to it. And the question now is, can we quickly build the international infrastructure so that there's a way for legitimate war crimes investigators to later get access to it at a downstream time?
4: You just described an incredible array of different equities and considerations that all involve impossible trade-offs. Like you talked about IP versus privacy versus freedom of expression, you know, the psychological impact of this material, let alone for these companies. I'm sure something that is always in the room is also their business interests. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's going to be something that they're thinking about. And it seems to me that, you know, reasonable minds might differ on the way that these trade-offs should be made. It's not necessarily always clear or not everyone will agree on where the privacy freedom of expression trade-off is, for example, or, you know, the, the the psychological harm of this graphic content versus its evidentiary value. So platforms may or may not make those trade-offs differently, or they may also try and sort of move in lockstep either because, you know, there's a set of industry best practices or because if you all move together, you're less likely to be singled out for criticism. And so, you know, you mentioned it depends on who you talk to at which platforms. I'm curious how much daylight there is between them. You know, there's been a lot Mm of sort of coverage saying this is the first TikTok uh, war as opposed to sort of previous conflicts that have really played out on Facebook or, or Twitter. Do the different platforms have really different approaches to dealing with this? Do you find some prioritize some interests more than others? Or is this something where, you know, or maybe it's not that organized. Maybe every platform is just scrambling and they don't even really know what they're doing. How how, how do the industry dynamics play out here?
2: Kind of all of the above, to be honest. I think they're all trying to figure this out in real time as crises break out. Um, You know, with Meta, I think because they were so in the hot seat and understandably so for the crisis in Myanmar and the potential role that their platform played in, in disseminating information that may have contributed to genocide, in some ways in this context in Ukraine and also Afghanistan, I found that they've been some of the most proactive because I think they really realized the dangers that can come from not doing anything and prioritizing things like freedom of expression and access to information that, you know, there are some contexts in which that's just not going to cut it. For all the companies, I think they do, because each company is so unique in terms of the kinds of content that it prioritizes. but even just thinking about who's using their service, it is a little bit context specific. At the same time, they are all sharing tips and tricks to the best that I can tell. And I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, We're all in this new world together. And it's important that we really help each other understand and understand as quickly as possible the full array of harms that can come from just leaving information up, but also if you take information down. I'm working on a book called Graphic right now with my colleague, Andrea Lampros, and one of the things that we're looking at for that is just in this context of Ukraine, how the volume of really graphic upsetting material has changed over time and how so many more of us have access to it than ever before. And if you think about users of Facebook versus, say, users of TikTok, in the Facebook context, you're probably skewing a little older in terms of who has access, um, at least here in the United States and I think other places in Europe, maybe as compared with other parts of the world. But with TikTok, it's going to be teenagers and young 20-something-year-olds who are really roaming that platform. Their sensitivity to the material might be very different than what it is for someone who's a little bit older. We've even been looking at kind of the gendered ways that this stuff can be really harmful and how that can shift. For example, one person that we interviewed for our book was talking about how working on deliberations within the company that they were working with, one of the social media companies, there was an understanding that some of the stuff you leave up and it's outrageous and it can inspire a revolution. It can be the kinds of stuff that really incites a desire for change. Um, a pushing for the acquisition of resources that is actually needed to really start an international tribunal from scratch or to bring these kinds of cases. At the same time, it can be really, really harmful and upsetting. So I'm thinking about a couple of the posts that came up that showed mass rapes in contexts like Egypt and other places around the world where there were real deliberations at times about, do we keep this stuff up? and allow it to inspire that kind of outrage that sometimes is necessary for social change? Or do we take it down, realizing that a huge portion of our population may be very upset by watching something this graphic play out in real time? Or do we take an intermediary position of blurring the victim's face and or silencing some component of the audio to try and find a way to let people know what's going on in the world, but hopefully not trigger them or expose them to some kind of information that might be psychologically harmful? These are not easy questions. The answers, the right answer can really vary from person to person. So coming up with these broad uh, guidelines really isn't easy But I do think ultimately, it's why we need to come up with as many options as possible. This is another reason why if a company has to take something down, it might be good to figure out if we can create an international mechanism or repository for the data so that they're not having to make these more fine-grained decisions. And that ultimately, hopefully, we can find this balance of equities among these competing interests by at least giving a little bit more control and a little bit more, more options to people. Finally, the last thing I'll say is one thing we've been thinking about is, you know, could the companies even be giving more control to users by allowing them to even, say, click a button when they upload something that says that they're giving affirmative agreement for this to go into some kind of repository for later evidence collection? Now, that's not going to get you one of the most valuable kinds of information for justice and accountability, which is perpetrator footage. I doubt any perpetrator is going to upload information and say, yes, I'd like this to be fed to a tribunal someday. But it might help to channel some of the information that's coming from everyday users in places like Ukraine.
3: So you mentioned the Myanmar genocide and and Meta or Facebook's role in that, and I think that's a, a useful example of the kind of mechanics of getting information from the platforms. So the Gambia has a case against Myanmar at the International Court of Justice alleging violations of the genocide convention in relation to the Rohingya genocide Meta's role in that genocide at this point there's been a UN fact-finding mission finding that Facebook as it was known at the time had played a determining role in the genocide and that it had become you know a, a really an amplifier of hate speech and an inciter of violence so as part of building its case in the ICJ the Gambia also sued Facebook in U.S. court for information about what the company had seen on its platform for many of the reasons that we've discussed. Can you just walk us through, you know, what happened in that case? Like, What, what were Facebook's objections? What was the Gambia looking for and how did it all play out?
2: In the case of the Gambia versus Myanmar, I mean, ultimately, the Gambia was accusing, as you've mentioned, Myanmar of violations of the Genocide Convention, The Gambia knew that there existed these series of posts um, that had been posted to Facebook that potentially indicated who may have been responsible for disseminating hate speech on the Facebook platform that could potentially help to illustrate the role that Facebook had played in the spreading of this kind of information that may have given rise to genocide, but also who may have been responsible for genocide on the part of the Myanmar government some of the information was a 1,000 posts that our team had collected from Facebook sometime earlier. So when we first started our investigations lab at UC Berkeley back in the fall of 2016, almost immediately we had begun looking at what was taking place on the ground in Myanmar. Um, Eric Stover, who's our faculty director, had worked in Myanmar for quite some time previously and so already had kind of raised our sensitivities to and awareness of Uh, The ways that stuff on the ground was shifting very quickly in that country. And so it just happened to be that as we were beginning to pull information about hate speech about Myanmar, that suddenly the the crisis there and the potential crimes there really began to ramp up. So it was some ways very fortuitous that we had just started collecting information at a very early stage. Later, downstream, we were asked by Steve Stecklow of Reuters if we would share with him any information related to what was taking place in terms of potential genocide in Myanmar. I think this was like 2017, maybe even going into 2018. And we said, sure. So we had a team at Berkeley that began combing Facebook for potential posts related to hate speech and genocide. Now, Facebook had essentially said that this kind of stuff wasn't circulating anymore, Our team found over a thousand examples of where that wasn't true, that this information was still up and about. And Steve and a number of his colleagues have been working on a series of pieces related to the genocide um, that ultimately were part of a package that went on to win a Pulitzer Prize. As part of that, he included in one of his um, articles, Hate Book, information about these thousand pieces of content that had been grabbed. Now, because the Gambia, getting back to the case, knew about these thousand pieces of content, ultimately what they were trying to do was find some way to get hold of these as potential evidence of what had taken place related to Myanmar. You know, I think there's a, and there's also, I should mention, the international mechanism for Myanmar. They've also become a repository for a lot of social media-based content that has been collected about this case. There's been a big back and forth where the Gambia was trying to get these thousand pieces of information directly from Facebook itself. And there's been a duke it out a bit in the U.S. court system about whether Facebook slash Meta can be compelled to actually turn that content over. One thing that probably listeners should be aware of is it would seem like very simple that, say, we could give it to um, the Gambia to use as potential evidence or to the court more generally, But unfortunately, I think what is often needed, unfortunately or fortunately, is that usually what judges are going to want to see is the package of information from the social media companies themselves, because there's a lot more data about when things were posted, who posted it, that help to point to the quality of the information or the reliability of the information for court purposes. As part of that, I think the trial court, the underlying court, the district court, basically said, yes, Meta has to turn some of this stuff over. They didn't say everything had to be turned over, but certainly a portion of it. And that ultimately did get overturned on appeal. One thing that we're going to have to think about jurisprudentially for the future is what are the obligations of the companies to potentially have the information they have feeding into court systems? There are a number of laws here in the United States that prioritize privacy interests But also really we're set up to help empower these social media companies to get up and running by limiting the liabilities and the responsibilities that they may have for later justice and accountability purposes. I think one thing we're going to see over the coming next year or two is really a grappling with is our legal framework here in the U.S. the legal framework we want for striking that balance between privacy interests kind of helping these companies to thrive interests but then also the ability to have information that they may be privy to ultimately be used to get justice for some of the most vulnerable survivors.
4: So to end in the somewhat obvious place I want to ask you about your predictions of the likelihood and you know timeline for accountability in the current conflict. You know we've said a number of times uh, today that these prosecutions can take a long time and are often extremely difficult. And I'm wondering whether you think anything might be different now. So Mm -hmm. whether, you know, the the, the volume in this case or the awareness and, you know, sort of the professionalization and the the processes that you've been talking about that are becoming developed, whether they give you any more cause for optimism, you know, basically, you know, what's the usual process that we might see for accountability in this case in terms of timeline and, and, and likelihood of success and is there any reason to think that it might be different this time around?
2: That's a hard question, but an important one. You know, I think it really depends on what form for accountability we're looking at. At the International Criminal Court, I think the prosecutor, Kareem Khan, seems very motivated to try to get these cases in the context of Ukraine together quickly. I think one cause for some optimism is the fact that they were already looking at Ukraine at incidents since November 2013, before this crisis even broke out and before Russia invaded the country. On the plus side, I think we may see a much faster timeline than we have seen previously because of that runway and some of the preliminary investigation and the contextual building you know, already having taken place as part of the on-ramp. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a faster timeline with Ukraine than we, have, than we would have otherwise. That said, because we're in an active conflict, that makes it very difficult to get those three buckets of physical, testimonial, and documentary evidence together quickly. I mean, these are such quickly changing scenarios, highly insecure. You know, it's still going to be years, I think, before we see a first case actually brought to the ICC, if ever. The second thing is because the International Criminal Court only has jurisdiction over the highest level perpetrators for the most grave crimes, and because they're based on a system of complementarity whereby national courts should really be doing these prosecutions first, I think it will be very interesting to see what capacity Ukraine eventually has to maybe bring these cases domestically. But then also for national war crimes courts whether under the concept of universal jurisdiction, there might be cases brought in other surrounding countries as well that may be a little more stable and may not be suffering from the same kinds of infrastructure threats that we may see in the Ukrainian context. I think on the plus side, the international community has learned so much over the past decade because of addressing issues in Syria and Myanmar and elsewhere that certainly our ability to do the digital documentation side has vastly improved from even a few years ago. And um, I do think that might be something that helps to build these cases a little bit more quickly, uh, since this information is clearly being preserved in ways it never had been before, being tagged and coded in ways that I think will, will lend important systematicity and make this information much more accessible. Finally, we've been doing a lot of training of war crimes investigators, as have others around the world. So I think there is also a heightened awareness of how this information can come in on the digital side to complement the other kinds of evidence that that war crimes investigators with boots on the grounds may be gathering. But in the meantime, to also look at some of the digital, the things that can be done in digital spaces or the kinds of documentation that might get some earlier wins, You know, I I think ultimately it's going to take a while, but, you know, I think we're in as good a shape as we ever have been to begin to pull together these cases and hopefully see justice long term.
3: Well, let's end on that note. Alexa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. Remember to subscribe to the separate feed so you can find new episodes when they come out, and please give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. Where you'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen